It is May 17, 1974, and a man breaks out of the Oregon State Penitentiary by walking out of a Salem Motel 6. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked out history folks at orhistory.com. I'm your host, Andy Lindbergh, and under the guidance of resident historian Doug Kent Crispin, we profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. In today's podcast, we will illustrate several of Oregon's most famous jailbreaks, and it will be a do-it-yourself of sorts. When you hear the pay close attention, because the tip from the pros that follows might just get you out of jail someday. Not that you'd end up in jail, would you? Our story begins with an almost footnote of famous Oregon jailbreaks. Dan Ford Balch is one of our favorite protagonists in the annals of Oregon history. As you may recall from a previous podcast, he was the first man legally hanged in the state of Oregon for shooting his son-in-law, the horrifically named Mortimer Stump, as he stood on the Stark Street Ferry. Oh, so southeast Portland. But before Balch's necktie party, he was incarcerated in Portland's shoddy Huskow and busted out to evade justice hiding in today's Forest Park. The problem was, that was also the location of his homestead, so it didn't take long for the authorities to find his whereabouts and bring him back to justice. Pro tip number one. Never go on the lam and then hide in your own home. It was June 9, 1902, and Harry Tracy and David Merrill were marching with 163 other inmates to the Foundry Building inside the Oregon State Penitentiary in Salem, Oregon. Escorted by several unarmed guards, they were headed to the Foundry Workshop where iron stoves were being manufactured by cheap prison labor. As the line of convicts marched past an aisle stacked with sheet metal, tools, and other related accoutrements, Tracy and Merrill bent over and came back up with Colt revolvers and Winchester rifles. The unarmed prison guards fled for their lives. Tracy and Merrill started shooting and put the first of many bloody notches on their belts. More deaths would follow over the next two months in Oregon's most famous jailbreak. Firing at guard posts and killing several of the guards in the process of the breakout, the men took a ladder from one of the buildings, placed it against the wall, and scurried right over the top, leaving three guards dead 
and a fellow convict desperately wounded. Pro tip. Make note of the locations of ladders inside of your prison. And a tip to any jailers out there, try to avoid having ladders in your prison. The chase to recapture Harry Tracy and David Merrill lasted for two months, crossed 400 miles of rugged, disparate landscapes of the Pacific Northwest, and consumed the time and energy of hundreds of lawmen. Historian Doug Kent Crispin. Harry Tracy was indeed an experienced criminal, and like the others featured in this podcast, no love should be extended to the man, well, maybe past his own mother. Tracy admitted to having robbed five banks in quick succession, walking away with $36,000. He was a career criminal, a cold-blooded killer, but oh my fucking God, how he captured the attention of the newspaper readers of the Pacific Northwest. At one point, a captive of theirs reported that Tracy and Merrill took some pride in their photos that were displayed in a June 11th issue of the Oregonian. The escapees carefully cut the photos out and kept them while on their run. A period reporter wrote that, The country roundabout monitor was built for the use of escaping convicts. The fugitive is as safe from detection as if he were walking the streets of Portland. It seems as if fleeing felons have always felt free in the streets of Bridgetown. And always on the trail of the fleeing convict was the posse. Among the band of lawmen, militia members, and seemingly random armed dudes with nothing better to do, was one fellow named Jake Williams, described by a period reporter as the most picturesque of the group. He was a native policeman from the Catlamet Reservation in Oregon. Born in Oregon City, Williams was pronounced as, quote, well-educated, and it was said that he went to the reservation in 1896, having been a policeman for the last two years. He had the well-respected position of being the first human to follow after the dogs that bayingly tried to chase Tracy. The paper heaped a ton of respect on the man, calling him a human bloodhound, noting that Williams' Oregon friends say that he rivals Tracy himself in endurance. Disturbingly for our era, the paper almost respectfully stated that he is a typical Indian and steals silently through the forest when on the chase. But Tracy knew how to deal with any pesky dogs and Native Americans at his heels. Every time he went into a house, he would shed his own clothes and steal a new suit from the occupant. At least once, he sprinkled cayenne pepper on his footprints, filling the dog's nostrils with the fiery powder and delaying their pursuit. Tracy told one old-timer that he had promised the man who smuggled the firearms into the penitentiary $5,000 once he could raise the money. A man forced to row Tracy and Merrill across the Columbia River was told, 
we're not bad men. We just intend to get away. If anybody stops us, they're going to get hurt. With us, it's a case of burn at the stake or get shot. Tracy and Merrill were two dangerous men who were not fucking around. Eventually, the hunt had to end, and Tracy was found in a Davenport, Washington wheat field where he'd shot himself just below his right eye after having suffered two mortal gunshot wounds. His corpse was eventually brought back to the Oregon State Pen, where his body was viewed by inmates, surely many of whom were his friends. The casket was sprayed with chemicals to help break down his body so it would not be stolen. He was finally buried in the prison cemetery next to his co-jailbreaker, David Merrill. Carl Cletus Bowles was imprisoned for a 1965 three-state crime spree of bank robbery, kidnapping, rape, and a murder that left Lane County Deputy Carl Smith dead. Bowles later escaped on May 17, 1974, after a four-hour conjugal visit at a Salem Motel 6. Pro tip. Try to have your conjugal visits in a low-security location, like a Motel 6. Other tip, always wash the sheets before sleeping at a Motel 6. The 33-year-old Bowles had been in the company of 23-year-old Joan Coberly, wife of a Californian carpet layer. Prison officials had thought the woman was Bowles' fiancée, but she was in fact his niece. In hippy-dippy Oregon, it was thought that a girlfriend would be a good influence on the convicted murderer Bowles. Needless to say, Warden Hoyt Cup was in a world of shit after Bowles' escape. Bowles and Coberly fled to Portland, of course, where they stayed in the homes of several aiders and abettors. They moved on to Eugene, staying in a commune, and had a shootout there with two FBI agents on June 14th, almost a full month after their escape. Mrs. Coberly was arrested, but Bowles managed to come up with one of the Fed's pistols and fled the scene. The escape was such a high-profile event the Oregon Governor Tom McCall made a radio plea directly to Bowles that was broadcast on stations across the West. McCall said, Carl, your escape from the custody of the Oregon State Penitentiary has placed in jeopardy the finest prison superintendent and the most progressive correctional program in the United States. I am urging you to repay Superintendent's Cup's many considerate acts and respect the confidence he has shown in you by returning to the Oregon State Penitentiary at once. I personally guarantee your safe passage if you give yourself up. Governor Tom McCall. On Sunday, June 16th, after several kidnappings and a few execution-style murders, 
performed with the pinched FBI service revolver, Bowles was finally tracked down in Post Falls, Idaho and shot while trying to flee in the Spokane River. He was wounded in his gut and two surgeons labored for six hours to fix his colon and to save his life. Count amongst the blood spilt during Bowles' escape the six pints of blood required during the procedure. Diane Downs attained national acclaim of a sort when she shot her three children in May of 1983 in Springfield, Oregon. Obsessed with a married man, Downs saw her children, Christy, eight, Cheryl, seven, and Danny, three, as an obstacle to their relationship. So she tried to kill them as they sat in her car. Claiming that a, quote, bushy-haired stranger on a deserted road had done the deed, Downs shot herself in the arm to help corroborate the tale. Authorities saw through this ruse and convicted her to life in prison. On July 11, 1987, Downs escaped from the Oregon Women's Correctional Center. She donned multiple layers of clothing and climbed over two sets of high security wire topped with barbed wire. She climbed under a truck and discarded some of her garments, crossed the street and hitched a ride with an unsuspecting motorist who stopped there. Pro tip. Hitchhiking women, it seems, will always be picked up, even across the street from the Oregon Women's Correctional Center. Downs was found 11 days later with a fellow inmate's husband, a mere mile from the institution. The prison superintendent at the time stated, she bolted prior to a planned infusion of extra staffing designed to provide better supervision of inmates in the prison recreation yard. She had it planned. She knew she was going to do it. In fact, she wanted to do it before we got the yard staffed. She knew it was her best chance. In a 2008 letter to her parole board, Downs wrote of her jailbreak attempts that, of all the felonies on the law books, escape from prison is the only one that indicates a healthy attitude about society. 80% of all parolees are dying to get back to prison. I've had cellies whose recidivism score is 17 times in 18 years. These women are programmed to be prisoners. If you're looking for a parole success story, four out of five aren't even contenders. If you truly want to know what sort of prisoner won't come back to prison, your first clue is the prisoner who thinks more about being on the outside of this place than being well-programmed or adjusted here. I am not ashamed of my escape. I don't want to be here. 
and will do everything I need to do so I don't come back. Pro tip. Never, never, ever write this letter to your parole board. The cast of characters we have profiled all left a dark mark on the pages of Oregon history. In no way are we at ORHistory.com condoning their behavior or even attempting to glamorize it. These are despicable people, cold-blooded murderers all, and they don't deserve an ounce of our pity or mercy. Well, except for maybe Danford Balch. Yet there is no denying that they have left an important, illustrative, and even riveting chapter within our state's history. These are dramatic personalities, full of sociopathic tendencies, complete and all-consuming carelessness, and absolute self-absorption. And from these tawdry tales, we can take away perhaps the grandest pro tip of all. If you find yourself behind bars, do not attempt a bust out. Just like they said on Beretta, don't do the crime if you can't do the time. Thank you for listening, Ass Kickers, and be on the lookout for future podcasts from ORHistory.com. We hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kank Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. Kick-Ass Oregon History is on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. We're also on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. Want more Kick-Ass Oregon History in your life? Learn more at ORHistory.com. Just don't follow Mr. Kent Crispin up to his motel room. He's had enough conjugal visits to last him a lifetime. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass.
history.com.